Welcome to Watershed's March podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. Hi, I'm Tara Judah and I'm the cinema producer here at Watershed. This podcast is going to be in two parts. Uh, the first part, Tara and I are going to be looking at some titles that excite us that are coming up this month. Um, in the second part, we're going to be joined by uh, Phil Johnson, who's the co-curator of filmic, uh, film and music season that we present in partnership with St George's and Colston Hall in Bristol and looks at the creative connections of film and music. So we'll be joined by Phil in part two. But to begin with, Tara, you last month you said that you had seen your film of the year. Yeah, I wanted to go with hyperbole straight out the gate. Straight out the gate. February, your film of the year. Well, this month it's my turn and it's my film of the year. Fantastic. That, 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 opens, this, this, uh, that opens in March. And that is Ray and Liz. New British film, um, first feature film by Richard Billingham. That's a good choice for best film. People know Richard Billingham, I'm sure, from his photography. He's international uh, renowned for his photographic work, still photography. In particular, subject matter is uh, his parents, who are Ray and Liz. Richard comes from something of a wayward uh, family, and that his parents um, are extraordinary characters, but they, they're kind of on the fringes of working class um, and they've gone through that 80s Thatcherism, unemployed, there's alcoholism, there's a kind of dysfunctionality there uh, and as I say they're, they're, they're on the margin certainly economically and Richard has sort of documented this in these photographs but here in the film Rain Liz he's made a drama about it. Watching Rain Liz reminded me of seeing say the films of Bill Douglas, the trilogy, mm. um, Terence Davis, Distant Voices, Still Lives, and Lynn Ramsey's Ratcatcher and her, her short films. And the reason being is that they all kind of document um, working class experience from the, well, n not just working class, but that, you know, coming from economically deprived uh, backgrounds. But yet there are some values of community, there are values that, that underpin it, and there's kind of hope there, there as well. Um, uh, but but the, the amazing thing about Ray and Liz is that, you know, it, 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 it tells that story, and it's a very personal story for, for Richard Billingham, but he does it in an absolutely brilliantly um, unique cinematic way. Yeah. It's very poetic. I, I mean, it's not my film of the year, but I agree that this is a really strong um, film, actually. I saw this the same day that you were having the preview here at Watershed. I was actually in Rotterdam at the film festival and I watched it there. Um, so premiering with an international audience who I think on the whole were all very impressed uh, by the artistic style, as you mentioned. But what really fascinated me about the film, because, you know, this could easily sink into that category of gritty British dramas yeah, um, and I think that's the perception some people might have but it's it's not, not that no, no it's not that kind of film at all and what saves it from becoming that very kind of stereotypical thing about yeah. gritty, gritty realism is that it's not judgmental yeah and that's actually quite a really difficult line to straddle where you're showing something um, that is bleak and that will cause some devastation to viewers in part there are scenes that are quite heartbreaking in this film yeah. but without judgment somehow still reserving the judgment to just present it as it is um, and and not kind of casting aspersions on the central characters who are his parents um, and I thought that that was a really fascinating 
I'm really intrigued by how he's able to achieve that delicacy because I think it's a really a very nuanced way of making yeah. a film. And it's in things like the detail. And I think what you mentioned about the photographs is really significant. So he also made a video artwork called Ray in 2015. So he's mm. obviously been building on this and thinking about it for quite some time. Um, and you 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 understand so much about the characters from the mise-en-scene, from everything that's in the frame. Um, and the first thing that I found like kind of heartbreaking in this film actually was the wallpaper. Yeah. There's all this wallpaper and it's torn away and then underneath there's this other wallpaper. And it's this sort of, he well, doesn't the, need to explicitly... That, it's the detail that he gets, which is obviously, when you look at his photographs, he's got a document of it, it is. right, right it's, absolutely there. Yeah, it's right out of history, but it's without having then to say in the narrative the layers of the problems, they're alluded to in the walls. Do you know what I mean? Everything yeah. in the film is in the room. So he doesn't kind of need to give clunky exposition. He doesn't need to waste his time uh, with any of those things that sometimes make those dramas grating because he does it artistically by just showing us in the room. Yeah, yeah the, no, the, 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 it's not gritty realism at all. And that's why I, I talk about Bill Douglas yeah. Uh, Terence Davis and Lynn Ramsey. I mean, I don't mention Ken Loach, and I don't no. mention that sort of um, that that sort of social realism, because it, it is about a, um, it, it. It's through a prism of a poetic, cinematic sensibility, and when he was here, Rich, when Richard was here, and I did a Q and A with him, I was talking about what his cinematic influences were and how that came about, because I kind of thought. It was maybe afterwards when he was in his, his late teens, early 20s, he was maybe went to the cinema. But funnily enough, he said that it was, it was when he was home one night as a young teenager, he switched on the television, and this was the 70s, I think, late 70s. So there was probably only three broadcasters at that point. Yeah. And he watched a Robert Bresson film. Wow. And so this Robert Bresson film was transmitted into, you know, this uh, council estate in, outside Birmingham. And Richard Billingham as a as a as a teenager, young teenager in this you know kind of crazy domestic world that he was living in, Robert Bresson appears on television, and he just clicked. And when you see the film, um, you'll see that it's in an academy, very square image. And part of that, well, part of that comes from that kind of Bresson uh, influence, um, and his visual style does as well. But also, what he said quite interestingly, and I. I I, from my own experience, I agree, is that council estates, he said, were windows were designed, aspect, um, the aspect ratio was academy. <laughs> so if you, if you went round all the council estates that were built in the 70s, somebody clearly had academy, um, you know, square, square windows and, and, and the rooms as well, there was a, you know, so he, he responded to these things as well. And that, um, you know, it, that provides the kind of way in which that experience is reflected, um, which is that, you know, he, he moves it away from the kind of, I want to create a kind of realist aesthetic into a poetic. And also another big influence because um, there's definitely Samuel Beckett in there as well. And, and Beckett was an, an influence. You've got Beckett Bresson in Birmingham um, with, 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 with Billingham. <laughs> um, and, and I just thought it's, it's like, um, uh, and I don't say these words, I don't throw these, this out, you, you know, Willy nilly, but Bill Douglas was a kind of big. Yeah. Um, and when you see Bill, when you, when you see Bill Douglas's trilogy, you know that it's a kind of serious work, you know, work of art that's, that's oh, yeah. happened there. That it, 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 it's talking about personal experience, but reflected through a kind of artistic process. And I think Billingham's film is absolutely there. 
and I'm really interested in, in how it's perceived internationally outside of the UK, um, because I think he has moved away from, precisely moved away from that kind of classic British social realism, and so it's going to be interesting as to how it's picked up. But certainly a film that I would say, well, it will be, it will be, um, it will be number one. <laughs> as, of, as of March, it will be number one in my, in my list of films for this year. Um, another uh, highlight for me this month is Carl Morley's uh, new film, Out of Blue. I've known Carol for um, years now, and I think she's certainly one of the more interesting um, British filmmakers that's emerged in the past 15 to 20 years. I mean, I remember seeing her early documentary, Alcohol Years, which is an extraordinary film of where she goes back to her promiscuous teenage years in Manchester um, around the Hacienda in the kind of the heyday of Man the Manchester scene and she kind of went back as a sort of late 20s I think she was she early 30s she went kind of wanted to make a documentary about um, her experience there and she put an advert pre-social media she took an advert out in the Manchester Evening Post saying do you, do you remember Carol Morley <laughs> Um, you know, I want you know making a film. Wow! Uh, uh, and it's an you, you, you must see it. it's an extraordinary, extraordinary, um, brave film. I said that to her, it's brave, and she said, no, no, it's not. It's just you know, it's just that's interesting too. And it's just no, no, it's really brave because you're going back to a part of your life that you know, um, you, you, you know, you've behaved in a particular way, and you have been a particular, you know, kind of um, things have happened in those in those years but you want to kind of go back and explore it but it says everything about carol because it's about an investigation of of not not her but all the men around her yeah right. who then how, how they view carol and you know and so it becomes a kind of critique of you know men in manchester at that in the music scene at that time it's one of the the best documentaries I think, um, that I've seen. It's a really fantastic film. And then from that, she's then gone on to make more documentaries. I mean, Dreams of a Life, I think, was the, yeah. the, 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 the kind of real breakthrough film for her, which, again, it, 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 not herself, but documenting um, tragic story of a woman who was discovered uh, dead in her flat in London and had been there for number of months or something. Yeah, it was a long time. I can't remember exactly the time. And then frame, she, again, she took an advert out in the paper to explore. So it's this great way of, of, of trying to, un, uh, of, to archive and unearth a story, which she did with herself and then what she's doing with other people. But she's moved now into fiction. And she did that with The Falling, which was uh, set in a public school where um, teenage girls, and it's interesting these themes about you know female experience, in particular teenage experience, which of course is that you know formative, dangerous time in people's lives, we, we, you know, and beginning to sort of look back on it. And in in that film, it's it's there's a kind of um, mass um, hysteria hysteria that that yeah. happens. It kind of echoes of picnic, hanging, at, picnic at Hanging Rock, yeah. Um, but she's really gone into kind of genre now. Um, she's gone to America, um, and she's made this kind of thriller um, set in America, which is adapted from a Martin Amis book. So moving into kind of different territory, and I think she does it in a really stylistic way, which, and with a woman at the, the centre of it, and she brings all of her concerns about sort of female experience to this film. And I, I, uh, I'm just really pleased that she's um, growing as a filmmaker um, and that she's got this new film out. Yeah, there's a real extension of that kind of investigative 
theme actually in all of her films there's a mystery at the heart of them yeah. even in the dramas even in the falling and even in no that's true yeah yeah, yeah. Is it, they're very concerned with this idea of something that's unsolvable um and looking into the unsolvable and i think this is a really ambitious story so the um, martin amos book night train that it's taken from has the same premise but basically um this woman who is scientist and a specialist in black holes dies mysteriously and Patricia Clarkson, who plays Mike Houlihan, the, the main character, is the detective who's kind of retired from this sort of police work but is set back onto this case. And it becomes a really personally disturbing case um, and kind of sets a, a, about a kind of unbalance. And it's really interesting because I think this film is like outwardly looking in terms of the stargazing narrative but also in the sense of trying to deal with these huge themes, mm. um, but also trying to find tangible ways to bring those back to earth. And one of the things that really struck me about the film was the way in which human desire uses physical technology or the development of technology as a kind of apparatus to enact those desires. So um, the themes in the films around guns, telescopes and what the camera is able to do and what these what the limitations as well as what they can achieve. Mm. So what these kind of technological forms are able to to enact in terms of our desires, but also how do they limit us in terms of growing as, mm. as humans? And I was really quite um, blown away by the pacing of this film, which I think the, I'd really like to watch it again, actually, because I think the first viewing, it really threw me off. And I found the pacing really uncomfortable. And I think I found that frustrating. And what I've been ruminating on since I've seen it is that that's a really deliberate choice, I think, that, that Carol Molly's made um, in order to disrupt what we think we know about uh, the way in which cinem cinema gives temporal allowances to characters and particularly to women characters um, and actually that I think part of the mystery is about the elasticity of the time um, and and how that works in in terms of the mysteries that she's trying to solve um, but also in terms of like systemic and historical oppression so I actually think mm. the film's endlessly fascinating you know and very very rich but definitely one that requires I think mm. some time and then maybe a second and third viewing yeah. and it, it, it's interesting that one of the um, one of Carol's biggest fans is Jane Campion um, cool. and Carol's one of Jane Campion's biggest fans <laughs> Carol Morley um, and there are there are kind of similarities in, in the territory that they're exploring but also the way as you'd say the way in which they're exploring it they bring different uh, a different cinematic language to genre. Yeah, definitely. It's not a regular pop boiler. It's yeah. way more interesting than that. Yeah, and delighted to say that Carol's going to be here for a for a Q and A um, during the run of the film. The third film for uh, March that talking about is uh, Border, the film from Sweden, which we've had some interesting conversations about. Tara, this is a film by Ali Abassi, which I, I'm I'm not really sure I want, to, I want to give too much away about it because when you start describing it, it just sounds completely bizarre, and it is bizarre. Um, but it, it follows, let's say, a security guard who has quite unnatural gifts of sniffing out people that are up to no good. So at the airport, um, she's the security guard and she can sniff, sense, people that are contraband goods, whatever. And one of the people that she sniffs out is is as equally a sniffer, as, as it were. Um, <laughs> she meets her match. She meets her match, let's say. Yeah, she absolutely meets her match. And 
they'd then go on to develop a relationship um, and then you begin to realise, you might have begun to realise by the looks of the characters that there was something different about them. Something else is afoot. Something, something else is indeed afoot. I had to Google um, the, the actors that played the parts to see, did they actually look like this? Um, um, and then they develop a relationship which takes you into a whole other uh, world. But I was, I was completely taken by this film's journey. And the, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of exuberance about it, both in its, both in its kind of off kilterness, but also in its, in its trying to say that being other, um, being different is is um, something to uh, something to celebrate but it it just to say that it it's adapted from I think it's a short story by the guy who wrote Let the Right One In people might have seen that film might have read the book but Let the Right One In is again about a relationship between two people that are drawn to each other but but um, you think maybe they're not best drawn to each other but actually maybe they can be happy together in their difference and I think Borders got similar sort of themes but I know that you're you're a little bit more reticent than I am but yeah. I, I loved its, its, its otherworldliness so I'm not quite as enthusiastic as you. I agree about I agree with some of what you said. And I think that um, as a premise, this is really fascinating. I'd be curious to read the story actually to see how it how it executes some of the themes that I think aren't resolved effectively in the film. Um, and whether or not that's a problem in the source material or if that's a problem of adaptation. Uh, because what this film does is it does like let the right one in, um, is that it is looking at um, folklore, it is looking at the kind of, um, you know, legends and mythology. Yeah, right, the Scandinavian... Scandinavian mythology context, and yeah. folklore, and bringing that together with contemporary reality, and I have no issue with that, per se. Um, what I do take issue with, and what I, where I think the film is really unsuccessful, and unfortunately for me, this is what let it down, is that it has unresolved narrative threads um, that are quite troubling that it doesn't bother to tie up, and not that everything needs to be neatly tied in a bow, but it doesn't bother to kind of go back and redress. And I think when you're trying to elicit sympathy for certain characters in the film, or if you're trying to give the audience a sense of lightheartedness and, and the kind of jolly um, sort of fervor that the film wants to give you, that it's deeply problematic not to resolve some of those issues because they are really deeply disturbing. And now, one could argue that actually that's the role of a fairy tale or that is, you know, that's great. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing is that, you know, fairy tales and, and those mythologies are... You know, you go under the surface, and and there's all sorts of nasty things that are I mean, happening. I agree with that. Although I'd say there's dark, and then there's like, <laughs> this is a, another level of yeah. dark. Yeah. So, uh, while I take all the points that you say, and I think you're right that it definitely wants to have that exuberance, I actually think that the film doesn't deserve. Um, or doesn't earn its exuberance because I think it fails fundamentally uh, to address certain things that it brings up. And I think for me, that's it kind of not really succeeding on its own terms. But I'm happy to, to disagree with you on this one. Well, and I'd be very curious to know what other people well, think. Well, precisely. So I was going to say, let, let the audience, <laughs> let, let the audience yeah. come in on that point And they can, of course, tweet, they can comment at Watershed. Yeah. Um, so those are three films that are um, three very different, very strong, um, distinctive films that, 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 that we um, certainly want to talk about uh, in March. 
So thank you very much, Tara. Um, that's the end of part one. So part two uh, of the podcast, I'm joined by Phil Johnson, and Phil is one of the co-curators of Filmic, the season that we're presenting in March and April that runs across Watershed, St George's and Colston Hall and explores the creative connections across film and music. So Phil, welcome. Just tell us tell us more about Filmic. What's, what, what can people expect to see and come across? Well, if I say a little bit about its origins, if you like, yeah. first, that, I mean, it's a film music kind of series, but not film music as in the score of whatever. It's, it's a series that explores the connections between film and music on whatever level we wish, really. And it's very much determined by what's out there, what's, what's available. So it's a kind of loose bag, if you like, in which we can put in uh, originally the things that, uh, that Watershed and St George's, which was where I was the music programmer, would find difficulty doing on their own. And then we'll, we'll kind of maximise those sort of standalone projects, if you like. There might be a, an artist who's going to do something like at Hauschka's concert this year. Hauschka is a film composer and also a pianist with a new album out. So uh, he's doing a little tour. So we can book Hauschka to perform in the Concert Hall of St George's where there's a lovely piano. And uh, it's not specifically Hauschka doing film music, but it's someone who's got a reputation for film music. He's done the soundtrack for Patrick Melrose, the, the recent series, and uh, the film Lion. Um, so he will appear, and then we'll mix that with other things. Uh, we'll also do standalone events that won't be connected particularly to uh, seasons of screening. So it's a number of different things. And I think where it comes from, and it might be helpful to... to Kind of put that out there because I think that determines the nature of the of the beast. That uh, you, Mark Cosgrove at, um, at Watershed, and me, Phil Johnson at St George's, uh, have got interests in in both art forms. You're interested yeah. in music. I'm interested in film. We've both got kind of track records in those uh, areas as well as our, our own sort of specific professional ones. So in some ways it came about through us just talking about things that we could do. But I think there was one event that really acted as a springboard for this, which was in 2010, Mark helped Colson Hall commission a new soundtrack for the classic silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, from uh, two people that both of us kind of knew, Will Gregory of Goldfrapp, and Adrian Utley of Porter's Head, in that uh, Coulson will put up the money for this, uh, they composed the soundtrack, they put together a, uh, a band with Charles Hazelwood, who's involved, also involved in this year's uh, filmic, playing organ and conducting the, the, the ensemble, and that was premiered at Coulson Hall in 2010, and it was an absolute knockout kind of artistic success really. That came about not through accident but because of Mark's connections with those people who I also knew so there was already a little a kind of kernel if yeah. you like of this potential filmic scene that existed there or, well, cause already. Because the thing is it exists in Bristol doesn't it? Yes, it's a very, exactly. it's a very um, I mean cause what, what, what I've realised over the years and, and that was a particularly the Passion of Joan of Arc with Adrian and Will was a particularly great example of, of it coming together in a high profile way is that you know, the Bristol music, as, you know, exemplified by Portishead Massive Attack, mm. there's a very strong under... Well, overcurrent of, overcurrent, cinem of the yeah. cinematic, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and so when you go back to the early work, um, you you see that, um, that film was a huge influence on Massive Attack, 
the people in massive attack and the people in Portishead. And so there's, there's a cinematic um, sensibility. Oh, completely, um, yeah. That I... they, and so, so these things, so getting to know um, somebody like Adrian and, and, and Will, but more so Adrian, you, you realise that film and film soundtracks, music and film, has had a profound influence oh, uh, absolutely. On, on his creative practice. And uh, so you can see in many ways that the kind of the aesthetic of the Bristol sound artists was yeah, formed by cinema as mm-hmm. much or more than by music, really. Mm-hmm. And not even just by the role of music within cinema, but really by, by, by films. Because like, yeah. you know, the, the, the if you, if you listen to, if you watch The Ipcris File, yeah. know, that, that classic um, yeah. with Michael Caine, you listen to the opening of it, yeah. the music, and you think, oh, what's... So I'm sure some of that's. I'm sure some of that's <laughs> I, I in, a, in a track that happened that came out of this. <laughs> uh, but also that it's this um, the way that everything eventually kind of joins up through because of the passion of Joan of Arc. Adrian Utley and Charles Hazlewood and Will Gregory went with the ensemble to the Film Music Festival in Krakow, wasn't it, that you yeah, went yeah, to yeah, as yeah. well? And I think that through that, they met Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. And Adrian was already a huge Adri- a, a, a huge uh, Radiohead fan. Yeah. He probably knew Johnny Greenwood yeah. uh, separately to that. But through that, Adrian then played on Steve Reich Electric Counterpoint yeah. with Johnny Greenwood, that I think was done at that festival yeah. or a related festival in Poland uh, afterwards. So all these creative connections were, were being made. And of course, Johnny Greenwood, you could argue, is perhaps the most kind of creative or, or almost foremost kind of film composer yeah, of, the, yeah. of, of the moment. Well, and we're, we're doing a focus on um, uh, him and Tom York, because of course, Tom York's just done Suspiria. Suspiria yeah. I don't know whether he thinks of that guitarist uh, in the band can can do this film stuff, then you know, I'm, I'm in with a shout, you know. But we're, we're, but what we're doing is looking at the scores of, of Johnny Greenwood, because he's done more, but then also Tom York's and, and the work that Radiohead have been doing in, in, uh, in film. So we'll be, um, you know, showing you will never really hear the recent score that Johnny Greenwood did for Lynn Ramsey, mm. which is mm. an amazing mm. um, film and an amazing score. Um, you've really got to stay to that film right to the end, and it's got to be played loud. Mm. I'll, I'll remind the projectionist that it's got to play it loud <laughs> um, because the, the, the texture and the detail in the score that fits the kind of what's going on in Joaquin Phoenix's head is, is, is absolutely brilliant. But then uh, Greenwood does... Um, Phantom Thread with Paul Thomas Anderson, a completely, a completely different, different. And, um, and mood one and that kind of uh, looks back to the 1940s yeah. or 50s and kind of takes on the mantle of the specific, like some of those Eastern European emigres who went to, to Hollywood, like Miklos Rosa or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a kind of, a t- it, he it's really, a kind of really is a film music a score. Of, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I love that. But what's, you know, triple interesting and relates back to this season's filmic is that so you've got. Someone like Johnny Greenwood and now Tom York, who some people in this kind of film music kind of circles might be slightly sniffy about and say, oh, these pop musicians coming into yep. our Hans Zimmer kind of world where you've yep. got these kind of like, the studio of Hans Zimmer must be like Canaletto in the 18th century, <laughs> where he's surrounded by 35 different assistants who are kind of mm. programming all mm. different Yeah, we're things never for, quite sure who's actually doing the music. <laughs> for projects all around <laughs> the world. So on the one level, these kind of pop music types who've gone into writing for for cinema and we could include uh, Trent Reznor from Nine yeah. Inch Nails we yeah. could include Clint, Clint, Mansell, uh, Clint Mansell from yeah. Pop Will It Eat Itself Misha Levy who also yeah. has a, a, yeah. a separate uh, identity as a composer with Mikachu in the shapes that 
there's a double irony here. One is that they are producing film music that in some way has taken on the 20th century avant-garde tradition in a way that the the film composer specialists haven't mm. particularly done. Mm. So if you look at what Johnny Greenwood's done in a number of his scores, you have to trace a link back to uh, Stanley Kubrick mm. in the music that Stanley Kubrick used, which he kind of stole off records at mm. the time of uh, the Eastern European composers, Ligeti, Penderecki, mm. and so on. And then, of course, uh, Stanley Kubrick also used in his last film uh, another of our filmic guests, Jocelyn Pook. Mm. Who oh, I of course, know. with eyes, eyes wide shut. Eyes yeah. wide shut, in that uh, Justin Pook told me at the time, the, the whole story of that, that she was on the phone to someone in her flat in Islington, and it was in the days of call waiting and all the rest of it, and so she gets another call, and she puts it on hold while she's finishing the call she's on, and it's Stanley Kubrick. He's Stan <laughs> <who's> on hold. Who's <laughs> on hold. Stanley Kubrick is phoned out of the blue because, and this is a complex series of events, his choreographer, Yolanda Snaith, for what became Eyes Wide Shut, has been playing in the studio while they've been practicing some dances with kind of the, perf the performers, has been playing uh, the album by, by Jocelyn Pook, mm. and particularly the track that was used for an Orange Telecoms, remember them, uh, ad, which uses Kathleen Ferrier singing Blow the Wind Southerly, yeah. and it's a kind of uh, collage yeah. uh, composition. Uh, so she eventually gets to let Stanley on the phone and he says he would like to meet her. So the next day, a big black limousine comes and parks outside her, yeah. her apartment and she goes off to be taken to Hertfordshire or whatever to meet with the great Stanley Kubrick. Mm. And from that, she composes the bits that are mixed with other bits yeah. of music in a typical Kubrick way in Eyes Wide Shut. And again, in a, a classic Kubrick... Uh, story isn't entirely sure what she's do what she's doing and what bits will be used where yeah. and whether there will yeah. indeed in the end be any of her music at all but she did receive the film composer uh, credit credit yeah. for, uh, for, for yeah. that and, and and jocelyn is one of the the performers we've got on as part yes. of this year's filmic so she's going to be um performing at st george's but we're also screening because, of course, she she scored the wife. Yeah. The, the yes. recent successful film with Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. Um, she's she scored that. So she we're going to be screening the wife. And, she'll and she's going that. to be introduced, yeah. isn't it? Which which shows a kind of um, I think uh, you know pulls together what filmic is. It's it's the performance. This a musician who's who may well be perceived in one world as a musician as a performer um, playing at St George's, but here's here's this you know other work that she's been doing in film and it brings together those both and connects them precisely those creative connections. Yeah, and she's got quite both. a filmography now. She's worked on yeah. a number of things from that kind of very avant-garde. Uh, short that she yeah. did by John Smith, I think, yes, ages that's ago, right. yeah. all the way up to the yeah. to, to the wife, and that, uh, or she's done Heidi, she's done a number of different yeah. things. But I think another strand in filmic, and I think basically we're getting to the point of, of, of where we are with filmic. The idea is that you can put anything in there if you like, that you can kind of find out what's available, you can, you can put together a special se series of screenings, and that we can cover... Um, I guess what we're trying to do is to do stuff that appeals to us that we think is interesting and we think is, is edgy in some way yeah. rather than just trying to do 
big high profile kind of uh, scores, but we can do that too. And yeah. we're doing that with uh, the performance of uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial in concert, which is going to be at Bristol Hippodrome. Yeah. But because that's supported at Watershed by a series which is screening some of John Williams' early scores yeah. before he became... Well, before, he, before, he, became, before he became famous, as yeah. it were, yeah, with, yeah. with Jaws and, 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 um, and, you know, the work with Spielberg. But including and The Long Goodbye, which is an incredibly oh, radical well, kind yeah, of yeah. score in which you have a series well, you have of the motif, singers you have the motif uh, going of the long, all the way through the film going through in every every environment that every environment that um, Philip Marlowe Elliot Gould goes into somebody's either playing in a piano or <laughs> putting on a record with, with, with this, with this with and this also track. Family Plot which family is plot kind of Hitchcock's, Hitchcock's, Hitchcock's final film, film. Um, and in, in many ways comparable to The Long Goodbye because they're both I suppose looking back now with yeah. all we didn't know it at the time we, we could see these are kind of I don't know postmodern iterations of these composers, these composers yeah. and these yeah. these filmmakers. Well, certainly, long goodbye is very, yeah. very knowing about what it does. But but what what the doing the um, screenings of John Williams' earlier work has done for us, and um, hopefully um, the audience will be interested in this as well, is that there was life before he, uh, Jaws, you know, that this this musician yeah. came from somewhere <laughs> and had been working... It's John Williams before been, he was John Williams. ...working on all this material, which is which is extraordinary. So, uh, you know, from my side as a cinema curator, it allows me to sort of dive into mm. a whole world and present it and curate it and present it in a context um, under filmic... Um, the, the other part of this year's programme that I'm really excited about is that we've commissioned um, DJ Chiba to, who's a who's a um, not just a DJ, but a, um, he works with Moving Image and he mixes um, films. And he's going to respond to the work of a number to, of different people who are also featured yeah, so within he's, the he's, season. He's working with. Um, he, he's, do, he's going to do three uh, performances: one at Watershed, one at St George's, and one at the Cube um, that Colston Hall have put on. The one at Watershed in the cafe bar, and, and it's free. Um, is him exploring the sonic and visual world of, as we've mentioned, jo uh, Johnny Greenwood and Tom York and their both music but also um, moving image work. Um, so that'll be in Watershed Cafe Bar. The one he's doing at St George's is an after show for Hauschka. Um, and I'm really excited about this because he's exploring minimalism. You mentioned Steve mm. right, early on. Mm. And I mean, you know, I mean, you've got Terry Riley playing at, at St George's, which is just such a kind of brilliant thing um, to be able to see Terry Riley um, yeah. play, playing live. Just to explain that for, for a minute. In that, so one of the things about filmic that I think is a real positive is that we can do music where there's no film involved at yes. all. Yeah. In that, uh, so Terry Riley was going to be coming to Bristol uh, anyway, like a number of things, we kind of bring the program together from uh, kind of what's available. And of course, Terry Riley, he has written film scores. He did film score for an, for an Alan Tanner film in the 70s. But he's the founder of min minimalism. He's the founder of a, uh, a school of music, if you like, or of an inf informal school that's been enormously influential in the whole of late 20th century, early 21st century mm -hmm. culture. In mm -hmm. that his music goes back, what everyone knows about in C, but before that, uh, when he lived in Paris in the late 1950s, um, Terry Riley produced a series of what's called the Baker Loops that he um, recorded the Chet Baker Quartet, the famous jazz group, playing in a Paris studio, and then using 
different tape recorders. He, he bounced music from one track to another and created a kind of collage of Chet Baker's music that went far beyond what Chet yeah, Baker was yeah. doing at the time. And the music for the gift, it was called. And the, um, you know, the, the impact of something like this is gigantic, something that begins in a tiny room or an avant-garde studio yeah. in Paris, but it goes on ultimately to influence the music and the cinematography you might see in a TV ad for a fashion brand or something yeah. like that. So, uh, because Terry Riley was coming, we put Terry into the uh, the series, and then I got uh, the Bristol musicians Eyebrow, who are two uh, people that we've worked with before with Filmic, to do a special after show uh, that will be shown at St George's after the Terry Riley concert, in which they will respond to Terry Riley's music, and mm. especially the music that he's done with trumpeters, both Chet Baker and then later Don Cherry. Mm. So we've got the opportunity there of, uh, of you know, originating mm. a, a, a new piece of work, yeah. done fairly, fairly modestly within yeah. that space that will last for 45 minutes or whatever. But because it's related to this, you know, very high profile visit of the founder of minimalism and it may be his last tour Terry mm. Riley is in his 80s now I'm not sure mm. how long we'll be expecting him to, to, to do a world tour I mean I guess that that impact um, which you say is immense but it's probably more known to people in the film world through Philip Glass exactly who's, who, a, who's who, another guest who's another con it. yeah a, a contemporary issue well contemporary of of Terry Riley and that impact into the, the film world that Philip Glass directly made through you know scores and we've screened some of them in the past and um, people know that but Terry Riley much more um, the influence on musicians mm. I mean I mentioned it to to Chiba um, he, he was just his his brain was well and truly uh, exploded in terms of exploring um, uh, the audio and visual possibilities of minimalism um, and that's what he's going to be presenting after Hauska. Of course, and after the show, which will be using um, projection. And we can link that back to uh, to Charles Hazelwood, of course, who, who you are going to show Charles yeah, Hazelwood's film Charles about Terry Riley. Because Char Charles did a documentary um, for BBC Four on Terry Riley, um, uh, Philip Glass, Steve Reich and Lamont Young. Um, and just amazingly got an interview with Lamont Young, who's <laughs> just you know, yeah. doesn't doesn't give interviews. And it's a two. It was over two episodes. It's, just, it's two hours. Um, tones, drones, and arpeggios, where Charles does a journey into the roots of, of of minimalism. And Charles will be here to talk about it. And that's on the same day in April thirteenth, I think. In the band that Charles um, formed to play some of the compositions in that series, of course, has got Adrian Utley and Will in again and, and Will Gregory. And you, will can see, Gregory you can begin yeah. to see the links across the the, the links and the influence. I think that, be, that begin to and the connection with Bristol um, because I think one of the things that we've you know sort of um, not talked about is that it allows cultural organisations like Watershed and St mm. George's and, and Colston Hall and, and now the Cuba are a partner in it um, with the DJ uh, Chiba and DJ Food event is that it allows us as organisations in different, in different art forms to collaborate and explore um, culture in a kind of broader sense rather than kind of, you know, our own ongoing areas of cinema there, concert hall there. Anyway, there's a lot for audiences to explore and all the information is certainly on watershed.co.uk. Um, you can see what's coming up in Filmic in March and April and also just check out some of those um, films that Tara and I were talking about earlier on. So that, that's it for this month and thank you very much, Phil. Thank you.